Well, judgment is a theme that, that's all over the stories of the Bible. It's here in Daniel 5 where God sends a hand to write a message of judgment for this king of Belshazzar. And many of the authors of the Bible specifically write that you and I, there's a day coming when we will have a similar moment before our God. And it may not be as dramatic as a hand writing on a wall, but the authors of the Bible repeatedly insist you and I will have our day before God. And he will render judgment on everything I've done. He will render judgment on everything you've done. And yet the, the cultural waters we swim in push back against this idea very hard. And for many reasons, but, but there's two I, I want to bring out that, that I think Daniel 5 deals with in many ways. That, that first, the notion of judgment cuts against our feeling that, that people should determine whatever's best for them or whatever's right for them in, in order to live their life. That for you to have a good life, or a happy life, you need to look within. Find what makes you, uh, fulfills you most, most, what makes you most happy, what gives you the most pleasure, and then you should go and do that. That, that, that ultimately, you're the determiner, you're the judge of what your good life is should be in the idea that there's a God who should decide what you should do and what you shouldn't, that he's going to judge you for what you did do and what you didn't do, just seems to cut against the notion that we should be our own judge, that we should carve our own path, determine for our own selves what the good life is. And the second um, reason our, our culture pushes back against the, the, the idea of judgment, or a second reason, is that there's this fear that if you believe that there's a God who will judge, um, and, and then you're on the right side of that judgment, then that might mean you, you could begin to, to think that well, you should be the agent of God's judgment. You should carry out his judgment on his behalf, maybe even with violence. So there's this real fear of the idea that there is a God who would judge us. And, and I want to say that these are ideas that are so deeply embedded within us, in, in our culture, that whether, you're, whether you, you don't believe in God, whether you're struggling with God, whether you're a Christian, you've gone to church your whole life, I think all of us... <laughs> have heard these things so deep, so many times that deeply embedded within us is this resistance to the idea that there's a day when God's going to come and he's going to judge and sell up your life and judge you for everything you said, everything you thought, everything you've done. It's hard for us to come to terms with Daniel 5. That God is a judge. So I want to walk through this story. I want to take it a step at, at a time. And even though I've just said that... Um, we don't want to judge, right? Our culture pushes back on this idea of judge. I want to start at point one by saying, um, first, why we actually want to judge. Why we do want to judge. And so in Daniel 5, we're fast-forwarded about 20 years from where Andrew was last week in, in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel 5, we, we start in the middle of this huge party. So everything looks great, right? There's a thousand people. They're eating. They're drinking. This looks like a good um, a good uh, party, a good a good moment. And, and yet, appearances can be deceiving, and they are. But two things are off. The first, um, we read this, this character of Belshazzar, who's referenced as, as the king, but we know from Babylonian records there was no king of Babylon named Belshazzar. And so that, that, that led many people for many years to say, well, this is a truth, you can't trust the Bible, the Bible gets basic historical facts wrong. Belshazzar was never a king when you read Babylonian records. Nabonidus is the last king mentioned in, in Babylon, and yet, um, in the, the 19th century, a tablet was found in Babylon where uh, they explained what, what's going on here. That the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, was only actually in the city of Babylon for 10 of his 17 years he reigned. He was often, um, out, he was a very religious person, so he was often out worshiping other gods. 
Um, he also would, was in charge of, of Babylon's military campaign, and things were not going well. And so he was out a lot as his commander in chief. And so what happened, this tablet tells us, is this man, Belshazzar, actually took an oath of office and was set up in charge in, in Babylon. And so Daniel's actually right here. So what's interesting is, 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 and this is one reason why you should always be a little bit hesitant to say, see, the Bible got that wrong, you can't trust it, it's wrong, is because you could have said that, that about Daniel 5 for about 1,800 years until we found the tablet, which made more sense of what's going on here. See, actually, Daniel had a history exactly right. So much so that, that even if you, you heard reading, when, when Belshazzar doesn't know what the hand wrote, and he offers to make someone the third in the kingdom, if they interpret this, um, this, this handwriting of the law, it makes perfect sense of, of, of the history that Nabonidus was first in charge, Belshazzar was second, Belshazzar's offering the third place in, in the kingdom. So, trust the Bible. I mean, it, give the Bible time, even if there are things that don't, don't make sense. And yet, the reality is, Nabonidus is still gone. The, the, the second in charge is the one running things. Something is off here. The other thing that, that, that is off is, is Belshazzar's actions, what he's doing. Um, we're told twice in verses 1 and 2 that he's drinking wine. And I think specifically in verse 2, the way that, that it's phrased, um, the narrator is suggesting to us that Belshazzar is, is not a bright mind. He's had a little bit too much to drink. And, and this is confirmed by what he does next. When he tells people to go and get the, the cups and the plates that had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, and he wants to come and now he wants to do shots with his friends out of these elements that were used to worship God. And it just, you know, Babylonians would never have done this. They were superstitious people. They didn't think um, that you should take off gods for unnecessary reasons. And so the fact is, he's just thumbing his nose at, at God. The fact he's doing this shows he's, he's not a right mind. He is he's acting arrogantly, pridefully. And so at this point, he, as, as, as these elements come in, these, these elements that were holy and that used only in worship of God, as people are getting drunk from them, a hand appears on a wall and rides forward. And Belshazzar freaks out. This is mine. This is these knocks together. Because no one knows what these four words mean. They, they know what the four words are, but they don't know why this hand has shown up and wrote them on the wall. And so Belshazzar freaks out so much, his mom actually has to come and calm down. And the queen comes. And what's interesting is, is she actually could have been killed for doing this. Belshazzar is, is the region in charge of Babylon. He, you only talk to him if he invited you, but she goes anyway. And as she goes, she kind of rebukes him. Basically saying, listen, your, your father, your, the, the former king Nebuchadnezzar, would never have acted like this. You're for, stop freaking out. There's someone in the kingdom named Daniel who can interpret this for you. Go get him. Stop freaking out. And so that's where, that's where I pause the reading. That's where we'll pause the story now. Daniel on his way in to interpret these four words on the wall. But I want to pause and, and, and press into this. Why, why you and I should, should want to judge want there to be a judge. I would say for two reasons that we can pull out of this text. The first is there's, there's no judge, there's, there's no justice. But we get a brief glimpse into the kind of king, the kind of ruler, the kind of power Belshazzar is here. He's mocking cultural minorities. Right? He takes their most precious items and, and gets drunk in them. I mean, it's be sort of like a friend inviting you over to their house, ask, and they ask you, could you bring your family photos? Um, we love to think, you know, we need your family photo. They, you bring them, and they, they say thanks, and they, they put them in the back of the fire pit and use them as kindling for a fire. And that's the sort of disregard and disrespect that he is, is leveling towards the 
spiritual minority. For what Daniel will say in the preceding verses, and we, we won't actually read this morning, but it's clear about Shadrach, he oppresses the poor, he's an abusive leader, he's a bad guy. And I was just asked, don't you want guys like Belshazzar to be a judge? Someone to say, you, you can't do that, and you will pay for what you've done. Because if there's no handwriting on the wall, there's no judge, Belshazzar can do whatever he wants. And if that's the universe you and I live in, one where whoever's the most, whoever has the most power rules, what hope is there for justice? What hope is there that the endless uh, cycle of, of violence and oppression, which we can read throughout human history, what hope is there that that will stop? And if you've been to Christianity long, you've heard us probably make this quote from Miradolf Wolf. Um, but he's a, a Croatian theologian who, in reflecting on, on why judgment is, is actually an important doctrine for people to have, why you should not give up on the idea that God will be a God who judges, um, it's because it, without it, um, there's little hope. And, and in particular, he grew up in a, a, a place where he knew rulers like Belshazzar that were um, in, in, inflicting injustice. And so as he was reflecting on the importance of not giving up the idea of justice to God, here's what he wrote in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. It, it takes the quiet of a suburb, suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a, a sun-sports land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And then he's saying two things there. First, he, because he's now in the United States, he's a teacher at Yale, he warns those of us who have a, a good context, right, a wealthy context, he says, don't, don't you who have it easy, don't you be so quick to dismiss the judgment of God. You feel very differently if you grew up right, where I grew up. And secondly, what he's getting at is that um, those who are afraid that if you believe the God of judgment, you might act out in violence, because you'll be his actor on, on his behalf, meeting out God's judgment yourself. This is actually worse if you get rid of a judgment, because what do you say to the poor and the oppressed who are victims of injustice and violence? What do you say to them to get them not to take up arms themselves, not act out in violence themselves? What, what do you say if there's no judge? If, all, if, if we just live in a walking dead world, where whoever has the most power, whoever has the biggest club wins, what do you say to the poor and the oppressed to not, not have them act back out to continue the cycle of oppression and violence? So Bolt says, we need the judgment of God so that, that there can be justice. So that you and I can know we are not the judge, ever. That's not our place. There is a God who judges. You see Daniel living into this role through his entire time in Babylon, even though he's the victim of he probably knew family and friends who were killed or oppressed by the Babylonians. Even though he had plenty of reason to take up arms himself, he didn't. God is judged. And Daniel sits back and waits for the moment for God to hear his the story. So there's no judge, there's no justice. Right? Our words to the poor and the oppressed are there is no help coming, there is no judge. Grab power by whatever means you can. That's, that's the rule of the world. That, that's why we need a judge first. But secondly, we need a judge because. Well, well, it may seem freeing to, to live your life how you want and, and to be your own judge. It's, it's not freeing. It's not liberating. It's actually despairing. But this idea that, that, that we should do whatever we want in order to, to feel most happy, that we're our own judge, it feels liberating. It feels like to, to throw off the idea that there's a God who would judge you for what you do what you don't do sounds freeing, but it's not. And we've quoted from this play before. A number of pastors have used this as an illustration, but Arthur Miller... Um, um, his play after the fall um, has this moment where his, his main character is reflecting back on his life. His, and his, his life in particular is a series of litigations. 
Right, so he, his, he had to prove how brave he was. He had to prove how smart he was, how good of a lover he was, how good of a husband he was, father he was, how successful he was. And then his whole life was, was lit- being litigated out before a judge, proving himself worthy. And then at some point, a judge was going to come in and either acquit him and say, good job, or condemn him and say, you didn't live up. You didn't do, uh, you didn't live a good life. And as he's reflecting on this, he, he reaches this conclusion. Um, Miller writes this in, in the play. He says, I think... The main character speaking this. I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and saw the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that, that remained, I realized, was this endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which is, of course, another way of saying despair. Now, Miller, Arthur Miller, who wrote this play, he's an atheist. Um, but what he's saying through this character is that there's no judge. There's no meaning to life. Right? If there's no judge, then who's to say what's a good life? Who's to say what's a, a bad life? Right? And, we, we, and yet we, we argue this out all the time. Right? We're in the middle of an election season where, where we're arguing. Right? There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of litigation going on. I would say not all of that's bad. At its best, right? those political arguments are, are trying to say, I, we think this leads to human flourishing. This is really good. This, this is wrong. Right? And, 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 and it's best when those two sides come together. That's the argument. Huh. There's a good life, there's a bad life. This is the good life. And yet Miller says if there's no judge, then who's, who's to say what the good life is or what the bad life is? There's no one to say. It's just you and I, our opinions. It's all we have left. And Miller says if you think that out, it's not liberty, it's despair. There's no point, there's no There's no judge to, adem, to either condemn or put you. And so you can look at Bill Shatter and see him living out this philosophy. He's his own judge. And at this point, we know from history that, 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 that uh, Bill Shatter knows Nabonidus' army has been defeated by the Persians and the Medes, and the Persians and Medes were going right for Babylon. So Belshazzar knows he's, got, he's facing enemies who want to kill him, and his response is to get drunk and throw it in the fire. To suppress the judgment and come to hide from it. It's, it's the act of one last feast. It's an act of despair. Right? So I would say, if you... If you Either push back, you think the idea of God judging is, is wrong, it's, it's not, it's, it's repressive, it's primitive. I'm just saying, if, have you thought of the conclusions of getting rid of the judgment? It means there's no justice for the orphan. And it means that there's no there's no truly good life that's being litigated before. There's no there's no meaning to It's despair. That's why we should want to Point one. Point two, why why we don't want to do it. So back to the story, uh, Daniel, he's come to the feast, and he's going to interpret the four words on the wall. The words that Belshazzar, he, he knows, he recognizes the words, he knows what the exact definition of them is, but he's now going to interpret, uh, Daniel's going to interpret for Belshazzar what these four words mean for him. Verses uh, 25 through 28. Daniel says, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tackle of Those are the four words. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And what the angel says is, is that God, Belshazzar, has, has looked at your life. Your life is over. And kingdom that you built is that it will be divided. God has weighed you and has 
it measures, but it is bounded around the two lights. So verse 30 tells us that uh, that very night, Belshazzar died. Interestingly, a point that's confirmed by two uh, ancient historians who aren't Christians, both Herodotus and Xenophon, said that um, the, the city of Babylon fell on the night of a very great feast. So we read in Daniel 5 as it's born out in history. And in this text, the perfect example why we don't want a judgment. Right, we're afraid if, if, the hand, if the hand does show up on the wall frame, we know it's not good news. And here, the hand shows up on the wall and it says two things. It says, Babylon is over, and Belshazzar, you are over. Right, there's this pattern of judgment that we see throughout the authors of scriptures leaning into, which is that God, God judges individual people, right? He's judging a single man. But he's also judging the nation's power. So this was not intentional by any means um, on our part as a teaching team. Um, but soon after the planning of the series, we realized that we, we picked um, the text that, uh, that God announces the end of a nation um, just two days before an, an election, where uh, a lot of people think it's the end of a nation um, coming on, on Tuesday. And I've chuckled many times about this. And, and I, I've heard many talk about this election as if um, uh, is it the other side wins, the side we don't want to win? If they win, um, it's the end of America as we know it? <laughs> Maybe. I've heard many, many people say this is, there's never been a more divisive election uh, where friendships have been lost. My attention, maybe. Um, what I do know is, is this. When, when Israel fell and, and was shown to be a failure as a nation, the book of Daniel has one response that is firm to that, that happened. And when Daniel reflects on Babylon falling, this nation that had oppressed him, that had probably killed his friends or his family, that had forced him out of his home to live in the middle of the city, Daniel has that same response the book of Daniel affirms when a nation falls, or when a nation is shown to be not what it maybe should be. Here's how Daniel responded. In chapter 9, Daniel prays, and it's after Babylon has fallen, the Persians are coming in, and he prays, and he reflects on all that's happened, on him being moved out of exile, on this nation that had oppressed him, on them falling, and here's how he chooses to respond in prayer in verse 4, chapter 9. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, and to this day, and to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. So when Babylon falls, this nation that Daniel could have pointed the finger up and said, look at all they did to me. Daniel does not point the finger at Daniel. He points the finger at himself. And so this week, a week of judgment, right? In a culture that doesn't believe in judgment, there's going to be a lot of judgment this week. As Christians, may, may we respond the way Daniel responded, which is, well, let's, let's face the handwriting on our own. Because for all of us, there's a day coming when God will write on the wall about you. And Daniel has wrestled with that. So he doesn't look at the fall of Babylon in pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. He looks with broken heart and his own sin. 
And so there's a lot of ways to think about the fact. There's handwriting on the wall coming. How do you and I respond? There's, there's a lot of ways you could respond, but, but there are really three. Um, to think through this week, as you think through the week, uh, what does it mean if God goes through this? First, um, one response is there's no handwriting on the wall. Right? There is no judge. And, and I hope I, I push you a little bit and just think out the implications of that, right? Is there really justice? Is there really, is there really a good life? Is there really anything worth bargaining over if there's no judge? And yet, I want to push in on the Christians for a minute. That it, because we live in a culture that's so saturated, I think it's easy for us to all kind of silently amen and say, yeah, I believe in judgment, that's, that's true, you preach that, right? But, but have you wrestled with the idea that there is a personal God who knows everything you've thought, said, done? Because I know a lot of us as Christians, we can say we believe theologically in a judgment and then not believe it. That's true. And when I was a pastor in India, I had a family come to me and I want to talk out some conflict within um, their family. It was it was hard stuff. There was bitterness, there was anger, um, um, but nothing earth shattering. Um, I mean, stuff that was hard, but stuff that should have been for, forgiven. And I was convinced because they were they were strong Christians, they would um, they would reconcile, they would forgive. And even weirder, in God's strange providence, um, the, the text for that Sunday was the text where Jesus says, um, you know, if, if I've forgiven you, you have to forgive. Like he tells the story of a guy who's forgiven a billion dollar debt. And, and then he goes and holds a smaller debt against someone else, and the guy refuses to forgive. And Jesus says, don't be like that. If you've been forgiven a giant debt, you should be a person to forgive and your mind's level. Right? So that's one reason why we preach through books of the Bible here, so that we can have moments like that where I, I can say, I didn't pick that text for you. That was just that just happened, right? God in his providence planned that. So preach the text. They're like, that was a great sermon. So good. And so they're like, let's talk with you this week. So we get back together, and it's, it's the same conversation. Bitterness and anger. So I'm like, well, okay. Did you listen on something? Oh, yeah, it was great. Well, Jesus said, you don't have a choice. You have to forgive. And I, I thought, like, bringing God in the conversation would be encouraging and comforting. Oh, Jesus forgave you all this, and and now, um, now you need to deal with it. But instead of becoming encouraging and comforting, you just got off. Now, I've actually found this experience um, more than once where as a, I'm, I'm conversing, and I just, just put God on the table, and it just gets weird. Almost like there's an elephant in the room, but we're not addressing him, we're not bringing him in, he's not being personally personally addressed. Eugene Peterson helped me think through what, what's happening here, actually helped me think through how I do this in, in my own life. Here's what he writes um, in his book, uh, The Contemplative Pastor. He says, people are not comfortable with God in their lives. They prefer something less awesome and more informal, something, in fact, like the pastor. Reassuring, accessible, easygoing. People would rather talk to the pastor than God. What he's saying there, it's not just about pastors. It's about the fact that I, I think we'd rather talk to other people about God than actually to God. Because the hand on the wall, it, it doesn't, it doesn't obfuscate, right? It doesn't make things easier. It's, it's, this is the, this is how it is. This is the judgment. This is the final word. You have to forgive. There's not a choice here. It's not A or B. You have to do this. And it's far easier to go into a bull session, into a conversation, and never deal with God. Right? I, as a pastor, I can, I can study a text. I can preach on judgment. Say, there's handwriting on the wall coming for you. And never sit silently myself and reflect. The hand is coming for me. Because God is an uncomfortable presence. And I would just say, if, if, if you're a Christian, do you come into this 
place. Hear God, hear the word of God spoken, sing songs about God, but you never deal with God. The demands he's made for you, they're, they're pushed to the side, right? And it's, it's this impersonal encounter with a, a religion is what your faith is not a personal encounter with the God who has opinions about the way you're living your life. Well, one day judge you. Judge me. So that's, that's one response to the handwriting on the wall. It's either say it's not coming or to pretend like it's not there. Um, the second response is really the response of religion, which is to say, well, there is handwriting on the wall, and the hand will write good things about it. All right, and this is where I have to say I agree with the, the cultural assessment and uh, our cultural concern about judgment that um, this fear that if you believe God is going to judge humanity and, and you think you're in and others are out, that might lead you to self righteousness, it might lead you to worst case scenarios and violence. I think, actually think that's a good, just look at our election, I think it's a great way of, of seeing how to become, right? If you think you're passing the judgment and that other people are failing, it justifies all kinds of attitudes. Actions, mentalities, and sometimes, worst of all, violence. And that's why we need to look at how Daniel and the other authors of Scripture um, talk about how you and I escape the judgment. And it's not by standing tall and pointing out all the ways we're good. That's very different. So when Daniel is explaining to, to Nebuchadnezzar, or to, to Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. But your father Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't die. Because right? remember, last week, God came for Nebuchadnezzar too. But he lives, and Belshazzar won't. Why? Daniel says, why? Starting in verse 20, Daniel 5. He says, but when, his, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his earthly king, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And so he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over you will, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart during the new office. Daniel said, Belshazzar, you're going to die because you did not humble yourself. In fact, you spit in the face of God. You brought out his holiness, which you got drunk out of him. So God has come to respond. And Nebuchadnezzar, he lived because when the judgment came, he got low. He humbled himself. He acknowledged, even though Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in all the world, he acknowledged he had no power in the sight of the Most High, who so the way that religion looks at judgment is, is it says, I'm one of the good ones. I'm a good person, I owe, and God owes me a good judgment. But there's two problems with that. First, is it right? It already we talked about this. It makes you self-righteous. Right? That's why the Bible, when, when judgment comes, the response of the people of God is not to claim to our morality, to claim to our goodness, it is to get low. It is to acknowledge our place as Nebuchadnezzar did. And second, the second problem with the religious view of judgment is that whatever your standard of judgment is, it's probably too low. Right? We all think Belshazzar should get judged, right? It's why all like arguments end up at Hitler, like the one guy we all agree with, that guy, that guy gets judged, right? That, we all have a standard of like, here's the good people, here's the bad people. I'm just over on the good people side. And yet, the reason we do that, we set a standard somewhere. And I almost guarantee you, your standard is too, it's too low. It should be higher. Right, what if Belshazzar is not the standard? What if Mother Teresa is the standard? And God's going to look at your life and judge your generosity, your care for the vulnerable, um, your, your heart for, for others who are, are broken. And God's going to judge you, my first. But friends, it's worse, it's worse than that. Because the hand on the wall that Daniel 5 probably shows up, it's, it's not Mother Teresa's. 
It's the hand of the living God sent from the living God. The God who is, is so generous. He gave his only son that even though he knew that when he sent his son into this world, his son would be murdered by the very people who should have known who his son was. That's how generous God is. What, what would that God say about your denial? Come on. The Jesus, the one who got off his heavenly throne, lived in poverty and obscurity. Even though he knew everything, he went and taught and healed the sick and patiently endured with those who oppressed him, and one day the earthly powers of the day grabbed him, crucified him, killed him. He, he suffered a humiliating death on the cross. What would Jesus say about, about your humility? About your willingness to suffer for him? That the Lord, the God of the universe, whose love is always other-centered, right? No matter what other people are doing for him, his love is always outpouring to other people. What would that God say about your My love. This God, whose hand appears on the wall for Belshazzar, is, in the words of um, the, the ancient Christian Augustine, is the most high, the most good, the most mighty, most almighty, most merciful, and most just, most beautiful and most strong, stable and incomprehensible, unchangeable yet changing all things, never new and never old yet renewing all things, ever active, ever at rest, gathering in yet meeting nothing, the God who pays debts, although he owes no man. That's my judge. It's your judge. That's the one whose handwriting will be on the wall. And what will that handwriting say about me? About you? If you think the hand is going to write good things about you, you don't know who's writing well enough. So we can't, we can't give up on the hand because if we give up on a judgment, we give up on justice, we give up on the sense of meaning life. We can't think the hand's going to write good things about us. But the only way to, to face the hand is to know there's a judgment. You and I are not. We're toast. Right? We need a judgment for justice, for meaning, and life, but we can't have a judgment. Because the God who judges us is so beyond anything you and I can do. So there's only one way forward. Paul talks about it in Colossians 2, when he was reflecting on what Jesus did and dying on the cross. He says, You, you who are now in the church, who are the people of God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the certificate of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As you see what Paul is saying there, he's saying that you and I, we have the certificate of debt, right? This written account of all that we've done wrong. And what God did in Jesus was nail that to the cross, that if you believe in Jesus, that means everything that would be written about you that's wrong and broken, your handwriting on the wall, that now applies to Jesus, and everything that was written about him now applies to you. Right? Child of God, loved by God, holy, righteous, generous, loving, kind. All of those things that are only ultimately true in Jesus are now true of you and me as we come to him in Christ. Which means you and I, we don't have to hide from the handwriting on the wall. You don't have to wonder what the judge will say about you. If you are in Christ, your judgment is passed. It was made on a cross when God took our handwriting on the wall and, and gave it to Jesus. And all that Jesus was, he gave to us. So may we approach the spirit of worship to our God with that.